0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday the 2nd of October... Jan Fran is here. Jan, are you looking forward to poring over Donald Trump's tax returns today?
1: <laughs> well, you know what? You guys did it for me, so the short answer is no.
0: <laughs> $70,000 on hair.
1: Yeah.
0: They've done a lot with a little, haven't they?
1: They sure have. With a lot of money. Yeah, they sure have. All
0: right, yeah, we will take you into Donald Trump's tax returns. We'll see what they reveal apart from the hair budget.
2: He's still a rich man, and rich men play by different rules when it comes to taxes.
0: That story in just a moment. First, let's get into the big news of the day.
1: Happy Friday. We're talking the trans-Tasman bubble, which does seem to be inching a little bit closer. Um, But for now, it's still a one-way flight path. Here's the PM.
0: I hope very soon to see uh, New Zealanders coming and holiday in Australia. I can't tell you Australians will be able to holiday in New Zealand, but that's their problem. I'm happy for the Kiwi tourists to come here and spend money in New South Wales and South Australia. They're very, very welcome, and I hope we can do that very soon.
1: Yeah, that is your problem, Tom. You won't be able to go skiing in New Zealand just yet. You did miss out. Um, Australian states that insist on making New Zealanders quarantine for two weeks, they actually won't be allowed inside the bubble. So, so far, we've got South Australia and New South Wales. They say there'll be no quarantine required for New Zealanders. There's yet to be confirmation from the rest of the states, though.
0: Yeah, this seems to be a big acceleration on Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's comments on Wednesday. Uh, then she said the bubble could happen by the end of the year. Now, you know, just a few days later, we've got New Zealanders flying here.
1: Yeah. I Look, I'm always on, you know, cautiously optimistic about these things. They could change again. Somewhere that we can fly to, though, from next week is Singapore. Um, this is if you get an exemption to travel overseas.
0: Singapore's put on, us on a list of countries that are doing well, um, which means we can travel there. You can apply for a special travel pass. They're adding us to New Zealand and Vietnam, who can also travel there. So from next Thursday, you can apply for this air travel pass to get into Singapore, if that's where you'd like to go, Um, unless you're from Victoria, that is. Insufficient. That's how the Aged Care Royal Commission has described the federal government's response to COVID in aged care. And they're calling for some urgent changes.
1: Yeah, the special COVID report made six recommendations, including urgent funding for staff be able to get families into the homes to see their loved ones uh, and also the creation of a national aged care advisory body.
0: In response, the federal government's pledged $40 million to boost staff and training. Aged Care Minister Richard Colbeck says they'll accept all the recommendations of this interim report.
2: We think that uh, they are quite constructive and that uh, the government is well-progressed in delivering four of those six reports Uh, recommendations already.
1: Yeah, this has been uh, a a real tragedy for Australia. Three quarters of our country's 880 COVID deaths have been linked to aged care. Uh, The report described infection control at some homes as deplorable and noted that many workers are now traumatised and who can blame them, frankly. It also noted extreme confusion from both staff and families about who exactly was in charge of the response. And the Aged Care Oil Commission, of course, is still yet to hand down its final report. That is due in February next year. Now, last month we told you about the fight between tech giants... Facebook and Google and the Australian government. The Australian government who wants them to pay for local news.
0: For uh, the last few years, the news companies have been bargaining with Google and Facebook over how the profits of the ad revenue that Google and Facebook get from news stories posted on their platforms, how much profit... Should be kicked back to the media companies. That's Dan Van Boom from CNET explaining um, this tussle that's going on between the Australian government and the tech giants uh, to try and get them to pay for our news. And basically, our government's proposed this mandatory bargaining code. uh, And if Google and Facebook don't comply, they could face a fine of up to 10% of their Australian revenue, which could be around $600 million.
1: Yeah, overnight, Google has come back and proposed a global deal. Uh, So instead of having to pay, are something like $600 million, they want to pay $1.4 billion, but what they want to do is split it across a bunch of countries. So to enter into close to 200 media partnerships in Germany, Brazil, Argentina, Canada, the UK, and Australia, they're the initial countries, and this money will be spent Over the next three years.
0: Yeah, so not one year to one country.
1: Yeah, it's not (laughs) $600 million in one year to one country. It's $1.4 billion to several countries over three years. Not quite the deal we wanted.
0: Yeah, so a lot less than that maximum fine that the government's proposing. It would also mean Google can license the content in a way that they could host it on uh, its new app, new Showcase, um, which lets users look at stories from different outlets in one app.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, Google will probably be touting this as a win for publishers, but I think it, it seems like a bit of a play to sidestep some of what our government's requesting and saying. okay, well, we're doing something about it. Here it is. We've entered into a partnership with you guys. We're going to pay you money, but it's really nowhere near what our government wanted.
0: Yeah, and if they're licensing the news and putting it on their own new app, it just means more people coming to Google and probably less people going to the individual websites of those media outlets. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jan. We'll catch you on Tuesday. Annick is about to jump in and we're going to go through Donald Trump's tax.
3: Do you try to minimise your tax? Most people do, right? I certainly do. But if you're the President of the United States, that can be quite a controversial thing to do.
0: Yeah, Donald Trump reportedly claimed $70,000 in haircuts as part of millions in business expenses that have helped him reduce his federal tax bill to just a few hundred dollars.
3: Yeah, this is from an investigation by The New York Times, which exposed two decades of Trump's tax returns, revealing the US president paid just $750 US in federal taxes in both 2016 and sixteen and seventeen and paid no income tax in 10 of the past 15 years.
1: Actually, I paid tax, but and you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It, it's under audit. they've been under for a long time, the IRS does not treat me well, they treat me very
0: badly. Yeah, that was despite Trump making hundreds of millions of dollars from his reality TV show and other endorsement and licensing deals.
2: I have legally used the tax laws to my
3: benefit, and to the benefit of my company. But the returns also showed some of his business ventures weren't going as well as perhaps he'd claimed. Totally fake news. Trump's critics hoped these leaked tax returns will hurt the president's chances when Americans go to the polls next month.
0: Yeah, it's already come up as an issue in the first debate, but really, will it have any impact at the ballot box? Dr. David Smith is a senior lecturer in American politics at the US Study Center. David, why are Trump's taxes a big deal?
2: They're a big deal, because his whole mystique is that he is a very successful businessman. What these tax returns reveal is that his businesses lose far more money than they make. So the fact that he has paid zero taxes in 10 of the last 15 years, and in some other years has paid hardly anything really shows that he is not the kind of business titan that he pretends to be. In fact, pretending to be a business titan on The Apprentice was what made him nearly all of his profits over the last two decades. He's plowed most of those profits back into high-risk ventures, which haven't worked out. As a result, he's now in debt to the tune of $400 million, which is coming due in the next four years. Intelligence agencies in the US consider that a national security risk because they don't know who he's in debt to or who has leverage over him because of that debt. The tax returns also suggest that he's engaged in some very dubious practices that might be illegal. Things like paying his daughter $700,000 in consultancy fees or drawing on lifestyle expenses like $70,000 for hairstyling as tax deductions. So there's a lot of stuff in here that indicates he's not a highly successful businessman. In fact, in one year, he lost more as an individual than any other individual in America. But nonetheless, he's still a rich man and rich men play by different rules when it comes to taxes.
0: Well, a, a tax return's really the right place to make an assessment on how successful someone's business ventures are because the point of these documents is to exaggerate losses to minimise tax, which is something that Trump has said that he clearly aims to do as a business person. So is it really fair to make that judgment on on his success in business from these documents.
2: Well, it's true that rich people all minimise tax. In Australia, Kerry Packer said, anyone who doesn't minimise their tax is an idiot. Now, of course I am minimising my tax. And if anybody in this country doesn't minimise their tax, they want their heads rent. But this goes way beyond minimisation. We're talking about being $400 million in the hole here. So yes, he has employed the usual minimization tricks. I mean, paying his daughter consultancy fees, that's a minimization trick. But at the same time, there's no disguising the fact that his properties, his golf courses and hotels in particular, which are the pride and joy of his business enterprises, just hemorrhage money. The only thing that makes money for him is essentially licensing his name. Branding has always been the most successful part of the Trump operation, but the stuff that he takes pride in claiming that he's good at, which is real estate, hotel, golf courses, All of that is just losing way more money than you would lose as a strategic move in order to minimise your tax.
3: It seems to me his critics here are both claiming he's really rich and he should pay a lot of tax, whilst also mocking the fact his businesses are doing poorly. From your perspective, which one is more damaging to the people that would probably support Trump?
2: That's a very good question. In the 2016 election, A lot of his votes that actually got him over the line, the ones that didn't come from hardcore Republicans, were from voters who believed that he was fundamentally different. That because he was so successful that he didn't owe anyone anything. That he wasn't going to be relying on lobbyists and donors and political party people that politicians are usually beholden to. These tax returns really shoot that to pieces. These show that, no, he hasn't been running businesses successfully, and it sheds new light on some of the things that he's done as president in terms of his response to coronavirus. He said that he would run the United States like a business. Well, he does appear to have run it like one of his own businesses. The other thing is that it really shows that this idea that he didn't owe anyone anything isn't true he literally owes far more than any other president usually has. So I think that that's probably the most important thing for the kinds of marginal voters that could swing the election. I think the fact that he's a rich person who pays very little tax, also that could hurt him among people who think that that's a real problem with the fairness of the system overall, because Trump did promise, you know, to fight for the forgotten people and profiting from the system in this way that does protect rich individuals, even when they're losing so much money, while at the same time as president presiding over corporate tax cuts, which have gone mainly to people even richer than him. That doesn't suggest that he's standing up for the forgotten American it doesn't suggest that he's draining the swamp. It suggests that he's made an already unfair system even more unfair.
3: One of the things that came up in the debate this week was that some of these tax laws were actually introduced during the Obama presidency, which, of course, Joe Biden was a part of. Do you think that is damaging for the Biden camp to, say, run this tax issue quite strongly, given Joe Biden's role in the White House during that time?
2: I think that... It's a bit too much of an abstraction. Uh, I think that Trump is seen as the central agent in all of this. The fact that he was taking advantage of laws, some of which came into place uh, during the Obama administration, and Biden was the vice president there, that's there's there's a lot of dots to connect there for marginal voters, and I don't think that that's going to be a huge concern. The central figure in all of this is Trump.
0: I guess that also goes to the broader question of, of impacts, whether things are, are true or not. It's really about whether they swing votes. And I wonder whether any of this will have an impact on the election or whether it just confirms what most people already believed on this subject.
2: Oh, for the most part, it's definitely confirming people's beliefs. This time around in the election, as opposed to last time around, there don't seem to be that many undecided voters out there. I haven't seen a poll recently that suggests that much more than 10% of the people polled are undecided at this point. Last time around, we were still seeing polls where 15 to 20% of the people who were polled were undecided. And certainly the response to this is generally going to break down over party lines, It's going to break down between the 40% of Americans who will never desert Trump, no matter what he does, the 50% or so who have been opposed to him basically the whole way through. There aren't that many minds to change in the middle. And what we've seen so far is that very little actually seems to change people's minds. One of the remarkable things about the coronavirus crisis is if you look at Trump's average approval rating, it has barely dented it at all. And even if you look at the head-to-head approval rating between Trump and Biden, it hasn't actually changed that much since before the coronavirus crisis. So given that that doesn't move the needle very much – I wouldn't expect the tax returns to move the needle a huge amount either.
3: One of the things I have always thought was interesting that Trump doesn't get a lot of credit for, at least here, is that he actually donates a lot of his salary. Um, Recently, he's given it to departments such as the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Health. Isn't that a more efficient way than doing it through the tax man?
2: No, it's not. If you look at the amount of tax that wealthy people usually pay, it is far, far higher than the quarter of a million dollars a year of his salary that he chooses to donate to specific departments. Furthermore, IRS revenue goes to the places where it is most needed. Trump makes those donations based on his personal assessment of how supportive different government departments are of him. It's a far less efficient method of redistribution.
3: There's also been criticism that he profits from hotels and resorts, sometimes say if a foreign leader comes and hosts an event and, and in one of his resorts, that perhaps that is a way that he is making money through his name, and perhaps that even violates the constitution. Can you explain that claim?
2: I'm not sure that it violates the constitution, but it's definitely a conflict of interest. And Presidents are usually made to not have any business interests at all. Like Jimmy Carter, for example, had to put his peanut farm in a blind trust when he was president. Mm -hmm. And when he was campaigning in 2016, Trump indicated that he would do the same thing or it would all be in the hands of his children and the management's in the hands of his children. But he personally is continuing to profit. That's a conflict of interest in terms of being the president and profiting at the same time from business interests. The fact that he's made 73 million from foreign deals is seen as particularly troublesome because of the fact that that means he could be beholden to foreign interests. Now it's very unclear whether this actually violates the constitution. I think it's more that he's violating conventions around eliminating conflicts of interest for the President. There is this sort of worrying possibility that because of the fact foreign leaders know that they can curry favour with Trump by staying at his hotels, that this is going to have an undue influence on US foreign policy, that he's going to favour countries Especially some monarchies in the Middle East seem to have figured out that this is the way to curry favour with Trump. That he's going to favour them because of the fact that they essentially pay money to him through his hotels.
0: That was Dr. David Smith from the U.S. Studies Center. Annika, I thought that was a really interesting point he made. That there's a, a relatively small proportion of undecided voters in the U.S. So so much of the strategy from the two candidates really is about. Getting people to vote, not changing their votes. And that that explains so much of the nonsense that we're seeing.
3: Yeah, it's very different from Australia, isn't it? Where people have to vote or they get fined. So just getting people out there, getting those angry, the base, those angry voters out there is really important for Trump and Biden if they want to win next month.
0: And do you think that goes a long way to explaining why it's just so chaotic and dramatic rather than focused and considered and policy-driven?
3: Absolutely. They don't have to try and convince anyone really to vote for them just to get the people that already support them passionate enough to get out there. So they're not even speaking to a certain sector of society. They're speaking to their own people.
0: All right. If you're having a long weekend, good luck to you. If you're not, um, even more luck to you. Um, We'll be back on Monday with a special episode on the science of sleep and daylight savings.